Hello and welcome back to the Nutanix Community Podcast. I'm Angelo Luciani and this is episode 43. Thanks for joining me. This week we have another recording from the Argyle 2017 CIO virtual event where Satyam Vagani, Vice President Technology at Nutanix, and others discuss strategies and plans to unlock the power of IoT. It's a great listen. Let's join the discussion. Hello and welcome to the 2017 CIO virtual event, Unlocking the Power of IoT. My name is Deanna Caldera with Argyle and it's great to have everyone joining us today. I have a few administrative details to share with you, and then I will turn things over to our esteemed speakers. First, we would like to thank Nutanix for their partnership with today's event. They've been a wonderful thought leadership partner to Argyle and are committed to providing you with valuable content and a great overall experience. So thank you again to Nutanix. We appreciate you joining us today. We welcome you to stay connected during today's event. For those who are active tweeters, please use the hashtag CIOWebinar. You could also follow us on Twitter, Argyle Forum, Exec Forum, and be sure to join our LinkedIn group, CIO CISO Forum. I also want to take a moment to touch on our content neutrality policy, which we've curated based on the feedback we've received over the years from our members. Argyle is very proud and protective of this policy as it reflects our commitment to ensure the neutrality and overall value of the content presented at our events. We've worked closely with our speaking faculty to ensure that you receive a set of balanced and neutral viewpoints during the session today, and we appreciate our members' support of this policy. We will send a brief feedback survey to you following the event, and we'd greatly appreciate your feedback, as it helps us make sure we are always providing to improve your experience. If you have any immediate feedback, please don't hesitate to reach us at feedback at argyleforum.com. We have a sampling of our upcoming CIO leadership forums that may be of interest to you. We'll be in Chicago next week on September 12th, New York and Toronto later this month. We'll also be in San Francisco on October 26th, and we'll be in Boston and Atlanta in December. So if you're in the area, we would love to have you join us. Finally, and most importantly, please submit any and all questions that come up during today's event into the Q&A section of the interface. Following the panel discussion, we have set aside time for our speakers to weigh in on these questions. Without further ado, I would like to introduce Satyam Begali, Vice President of Technology at Nutanix. We are pleased to have Satyam with us to deliver opening remarks. Welcome, Satyam. Over to you. Thanks very much, Diana, and uh, thanks a lot to the audience for making the time to attend today and to the panel, for sure. Uh, we have a great uh, set of folks on the panel, you know, from people who are creators of technology to people who are consumers of technology in the healthcare vertical and the finance vertical, in airlines, transportation, etc. So, you know, more than anything else, I'm really excited about the discussion we might have. Uh, after my opening remarks. I just want to spend the next few minutes kind of framing what IoT is and potentially, you know, the big problems that exist in this space that might need very elegant solutions uh, for IoT to become mainstream. 
And before I go there, you know, just a obvious reminder that you know most of my remarks are about future-looking technology, and that doesn't represent any commitment from at least my employer in Nutanix uh, in terms of product deliver delivery or timelines. Now that said, you know, at least when it comes to IoT, it began as a personal journey for me. Uh, my company was acquired by Nutanix last year, and when I came in. And my biggest challenge was to figure out how to help get the company into a leadership position in a space that potentially doesn't exist right now. And to figure out what that space could be, I started following the breadcrumbs. And so here's one way to follow the breadcrumbs is you know, here's a chart to show the amount of compute that's deployed in various form factors around the world. There's a whole bunch of computers that are running in the public cloud. Between the top three providers, we estimate there's roughly three and a half million computers that make up infrastructure as a service and platform as a service. And that's one-tenth the amount of computers that run in the private cloud. Yet, we are incredibly excited about what the public cloud can potentially become just because of the potential and the fact that at the end of, at the, end of the day, it's a very disruptive platform compared to where we were. It's a very disruptive platform in the in the way we consume computing, but it's also a very disruptive platform in the sense of the potential services that might come out of it, which might be very different from the services that came out of the private cloud, for example. And that in itself represents a fundamental change in compute paradigm. Every time there is a fundamental change in compute paradigm, I think there is the potential to create a new technology space that didn't exist before. You know, we saw this in the smartphone space a few years ago when the first smartphone was created, the iPhone. You know, it was a fundamental change in compute paradigm because the operating systems for the smartphones operated in a very different way than the operating systems that we were used to on desktops and servers. And so I think the world of machines is that next fundamental change in compute paradigm. And that is the reason why I'm really excited personally about IoT, is every time there is a fundamental change in compute paradigm, there is an opportunity to create a new operating system and a new operating experience around that. And what I mean by that is if you look at when we went from desktops to cell phones, mobile phones, smartphones, we saw that the operating systems that we created for desktops didn't quite work for smartphones. We had to rethink the problem because the experience that humans were expecting to derive out of smartphones was very different from the experience that they derived out of desktops. You know, the, the use cases were almost the same. It was about sending emails, maybe, you know, looking up your calendar, um, you know, hooking up with buddies on LinkedIn and so on and so forth. But the haptic experience was fundamentally different, and hence we had to rethink what an operating system should provide as core services. It was no longer about whether an OS can do a file system or a networking stack or any such thing. It was more about whether an OS can do one-click applications, whether an OS can provide applications that auto-update themselves, whether an operating system can provide notifications that are outside of the control of applications. So applications don't get to create pop-ups. 
itself as a framework to create notifications. So that was a change in how we thought about the experience going from desktops to smartphones. Yeah, we've seen the same thing happen in data centers. Is when we first created the private cloud, we saw the rise of hypervisors because it was no longer necessary for a single operating system, like in the desktop world, to run on a server. It was important to partition a very beefy server into what looked like many, many logical different operating systems that led to the rise of you know, virtualization, various vendors around virtualization and so on. But then, you know, same concept when people tried to apply it to the public cloud, it led to the creation of yet another operating system, which was not just about virtualization, but it was also about providing services that make virtual machines um, invisible from the point of the end user. It, it was no longer about deploying database virtual machines anymore. It was about just uh, consuming database as a service or email as a service and so on and so forth. So fundamental changes in compute paradigm, and that always leads to a fundamental change in the operating system, the thinking about the user experience around that compute paradigm. And so all in all, I think the world of things, the world of machines, is that new fundamental change. It's not only about the fact that there are three and a half billion machines already powering enterprise IoT applications, but it's also the fact that those machines don't need email as core services. They don't need a file system as core services. They don't need LinkedIn as core services. They need something fundamentally different. They need to uh, consume data as fast as they can and draw interesting insights of that data, out of that data as fast as they can. And so that's the new potential service that is going to be relevant in the world of machines. And to me, that's very exciting because that's a new operating systems problem. It's an OS that is unlike any other we have created in the past. And it's not an OS in the sense of traditional operating systems. It's not an OS that's a little ISO image that you install on a PC or a specific piece of hardware. The OS in this context actually spans multiple rings of a universe, right? The outermost ring of a universe is a whole bunch of sensors. These can be very tiny devices, you know, HVAC sensors, temperature sensors, radars, LIDARs, uh, webcams, et cetera, et cetera. They all collect interesting data about the real world. In other words, they digitize the real world for the machines to make sense out of. And all that digitized information is related to what's called the edge. It could be a smart factory, it could be an airport, it could be an oil rig, it could be a hospital, a retail store, uh, forward operating base, an aircraft carrier, you know, something that is not the traditional data center, something that is far away from traditional data centers, in fact. And all those edges could then be connected to a cloud, and this could be a public or private cloud, it doesn't matter, but that's potentially the final place for some amount of that real-world data to be archived. And so when I talk about an IoT operating system, an OS for the world of machines, I'm essentially talking about an OS that spans all these three rings of the universe, an OS that makes data and code movement seamless between all these entities, all the way from the sensors to the edge to the cloud. And this is the opportunity for providers of technology to create 
and for consumers of technology to adopt. And this is not an opportunity where consumers of technology are going to be silenced because every use case, you know, whether it's an airport or a or a retail store or a aircraft carrier, the use cases are so massively different that this is not a case where we are going to be able to make an operating system in the Silicon Valley in isolation and then go out to consumers and say, hey, would you like to have it? This is going to be uh, a great chance for consumers and creators of technology to work together for change right from the design phase. And that's, that, that gets me really excited. Now, there is one big difference in how we create this technology compared to where we already are, which is the world of private clouds and public clouds. Is the one big realization that at least I have personally come to is, and this is some data from a different vendor, Cisco, they published this global cloud index where they quantify the amount of data that crosses the private and public clouds of the world combined. In the year 2017, they estimate roughly eight and a half zettabytes. That you know, a zettabyte is a billion petabytes. Eight and a half zettabytes of data to cross public and private clouds, and this includes everything. You know, all the public cloud providers, all the public websites, the YouTube's of the world, and the Gmail's of the world, to everything that goes on inside private data centers, whether it's a bank or a or, or the government or whatever it is. Eight and a half zettabytes. By the year 2020, it's going to roughly double to 15 zettabytes. Hard to read here. Just this year, the world of machines is going to produce 32 times more data than the public and private clouds will ever see. And by 2020, the world of machines is going to produce 40 times more data than the public and private cloud will ever see. And so this raises an interesting question as we, as technologists, have probably gotten to a point where we have almost perfected the public and private cloud. And now we wake up to this possibility that everything that we have worked towards potentially holds not even one-tenth of the amount of data that the world is going to produce in three years from now. And so that's an interesting dilemma. It's also an interesting opportunity. It's an opportunity to create a new operating system that that can handle 40 times more data than some of the cloud operating systems that we've already created. And to me, again, it's very exciting because the current cloud operating systems, whether it's a private cloud or the public cloud, are already very magnificent, magnificent and sophisticated. So imagine the sophistication, the impact, the importance of an operating system that can handle 40 times that the volume of data that our current generation can handle. That's an exciting proposition, at least for me. And the question is why is all this data that's generated on the edge not coming to the cloud? And the answer is very simple is, you know, in various use cases that you see, whether it's smart cities, smart retail, smart airports, you know, there's clear quantification that a lot of this data needs to be cleaned. And hence, you know, that just needs to, the cleaning needs to be uh, taken care of at the edge before it hits the cloud, because otherwise we are just going to create a very inefficient system. So one reason the edge sees more data is because it just processes it right, processes it right there. The other reason is latency. Is It is posited that a lot of decisions need to be taken at the edge. 
and those decisions, all the data that needs to be used for that decision making, doesn't need to make it to the cloud in the first place. And the Tesla is a good example. Is you know the smart car, a self-driving car, if you will, doesn't need to relay all the radar data to the cloud to figure out whether it's going to get into a crash or not. It needs to make all those decisions right there on the car itself, which is the edge, if you will. And then the cloud, in this example, would essentially focus on the long-term aspect of how the Tesla's brain evolves to drive better. And that is done by aggregating a lot of data from all the Teslas around the world, but only anomalies, all the things that they are not yet uh, programmed to, um, to react to. All the anomalies make it to the cloud, and the cloud can essentially train a better model for a self-driving car. So real-time decision-making on the edge, long-term decision-making on the cloud, that's the model uh, that we are all waking up to, and which is why a lot of the data doesn't leave the edge for the cloud. And so in terms of technology impact, what this the, the bar chart that I just showed you means is we are potentially, in terms of IoT technology and edge computing, we are potentially going to change from this model today where we essentially have a lot of sensors collect data and show that data as fast as we can to the cloud so that we can run real-time processing in the cloud and then some long-term processing in the cloud. We're going to move from that model to this new model where we are potentially going to deploy a reasonable amount of computing on the edge. And this is going to be non-trivial devices because these devices will do analytics. They'll partly do machine learning and so on. Uh, and so these non-trivial devices will be capable of crunching through data to take real-time decisions. And then only a subset of the data makes it to the cloud for long-term processing. And so the world of IoT gateways will eventually give way, in my opinion, to edge computing, a world of much more capable devices that are deployed outside of traditional data centers, outside of the traditional public and private cloud domain, and that are capable of taking very real decisions based on uh, data coming in from sensors. And so in that world, now suddenly we have a new dilemma, is that we as technologists have already proven ourselves to be very incapable of doing distributed computing at scale. And it's a very hard problem because it's a distributed systems problem, it's a security nightmare, it's a data distribution nightmare. And now we are going to face this world where almost every application in the world of machines is going to be a distributed application. It's going to be spread between the cloud and the, and the edge. And so then the question is, can we as the industry provide a platform solution to this massively distributed problem? Can we make it much easier to create applications that are distributed? And so the question is, well, what does make, what makes it hard to create applications that span the edge in the cloud? And here's some examples of what makes it hard is, you know, we were hardly capable of creating monolithic applications, you know, a simple database that runs inside a VM that is sitting in a private cloud. And now we've got to create applications that use analytics as first class functions. 
uh, applications that use machine learning as first class functions. And by the way, we've got to secure that application, part, part of which that runs on the edge, part of which runs in the cloud. And we've got to use cutting edge technologies. We no longer have to just use VMs or some such thing. We now have to figure out how to use high level frameworks, things like say TensorFlow for machine learning or OpenCV or Keras for machine learning or things like Spark for analytics or Beam for analytics and so on. So the question is, you know, how can we make it such that a simple technologist that doesn't have two degrees in computer science can deal with the unbelievably complicated math of analytics or machine learning? How can we make it such that most of these services are now provided in a much simpler to understand way than what they are today, which is, you know, it requires real data scientists to make any sense out of data. And, you know, if we are not able to reduce the barrier to entry, the technology barrier to writing interesting IoT applications, then I posit that we won't have interesting IoT applications. And if we don't have interesting IoT applications, then IoT will fail as a technology. Uh, people will lose interest. And just to kind of make the problem real, I have an example uh, before we open it up to the panel. And here's a smart airport example. You know, there's a bunch of sensors on the airport. There's a bunch of webcams at every airport. You know, let's say 2,000 of these spread across the airport. A few HVAC sensors, a whole bunch of kiosks where people print out boarding passes. And all of these devices are sources of data that digitize the airport that feed into potentially a bunch of devices that constitute the edge at the airport itself. And a whole bunch of these edges, a whole bunch of these airports are connected to the cloud. And in this context, if we were to create a simple application, an application that can uh, potentially detect a person of interest or an object of interest, like let's say a white van or a red car or a, you know, a terrorist, you know, to create a simple application to detect that person we would have to train a machine model on the cloud to detect that object or person. We've got to deploy that model to the edge. We've got to figure out how that model runs on the edge, whether it's a VM, whether it's a container. We've got to figure out how to package that model in that runtime. How do you package that model in a VM or in a container and so on? And how do you do persistence on the edge? How, how do you store data on the edge? What is that service? And how do you make it such that that data can then make it seamlessly to the cloud? How do you write the logic to move that data from the from the edge to the cloud? How do you secure that data movement from the edge to the cloud? How do you optimize the data movement from the edge to the cloud? What is the persistence layer for that data on the cloud? Are you going to use a time series database? Are you going to use some kind of object store? and so on and so forth. There are so many decisions to make and most of the decisions have nothing to do with the core application logic that the person was out to create in the first place, which is to detect an object or a person and raise a flag. The application, the business logic was as simple as that, but to, to enable that business logic, you got to create all these you know, various steps, various technology pieces that are very difficult to create. And so in our opinion, in my opinion, it'd be very interesting if we can create an IoT operating system 
which does two things very well is number one if it can provide data services that are much more cloud oriented and those data services you know if it can provide those data services on the edge and so i guess what i'm talking about is if we can create a micro pass on the edge just like the pass layer that we have on the cloud so that we can potentially provide unstructured data as a service or streaming data as a service so all the data coming in from the sensor can be stored on the edge without the application having to worry about how to store the data without the application having to worry about how to actually run and operate and manage and update and secure a streaming data service or a unstructured data service or a structured data service for that matter if the platform can provide it you know it becomes all the more easier for the iot application writer to just consume that data service whether it's on the edge of the cloud in other words essentially providing a cloud like experience on the edge similarly on the application services side if we can make it much easier for developers to literally deploy code to the edge in a serverless fashion just like how they deploy code to the cloud you know then the experience creating applications are is very similar to the experience creating applications on the cloud it's a very homogeneous experience and last but not the least if we can uh we can make the seams between the edge and the cloud go away if we can make it such that people don't have to worry about moving data between the edge and the cloud as application logic if they don't have to worry about moving data between the securing the the network between the edge and the cloud as part of application logic if they don't have to worry about optimizing the network connectivity between the edge and the cloud as part of application logic i posit it'll be much much easier to create iot applications that are massively useful and so that's the iot oper- operating system that we envision is something that converges the edge and the cloud into what looks like one seamless piece of infrastructure and if we can do that we will severely reduce the infrastructure burden for edge computing and for iot and we will obviously reduce the development burden because now this is a much more developer friendly world for edge computing than a infrastructure friendly world for edge computing and with that i'll take a pause maybe uh, invite diane to uh, bring in our panelists and uh, we'll start our panel discussion perfect thank you satyam for that great presentation just as a reminder to all of our listeners please submit any questions that you have in the q and a interface and following the panel discussion we have set time aside for our speakers to weigh in on these questions Um so now we're going to kick off the panel portion of the event. We have an excellent panel lineup today. Um so I'm just going to allow each of the panelists to introduce themselves. Um so Anthony Yeah, hello everybody. Uh my name's Anthony Maiello. I um work for a company called Saber Holdings, we're a travel uh airline hotels travel agency company and uh I am the uh, senior vice president and uh chief technologist for software development. Thank Perfect. you. Thank you, Anthony. Um Chris? Hey everybody. I my name is Chris Matthew. I'm one of the original co-founders of the Octoblue IoT platform which was acquired by Citrix 
a couple of years ago. So now I'm the director of IoT engineering for Citrix. Perfect. Thanks, Chris. And Kumar? Hi, everyone. Uh, Kumar Srivastava. I have been, uh, I started my career at Microsoft. I've been in, in technology for a lot of time, a lot of years. Most recently at Bank of New York Mellon's Innovation Center in Silicon Valley. Perfect. Thanks, Kumar. And last but not least, Christine. Hi, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Christine Watts, and I am the Chief Enterprise Architect at the University of Chicago Medicine. Perfect. Welcome, everybody. Um, so today's panel will be moderated by Satyam. So Satyam, over to you. Thanks very much, uh, Diana, and thanks a lot again, Anthony, Chris, Christine, Kumar, for joining. Uh, I guess maybe we'll kick it off by uh, maybe understanding a few IoT use cases or edge computing use cases, for that matter, that you guys might have encountered in your own jobs. Uh, would you, maybe Christine, um, Anthony, Kumar, would you guys uh, maybe mind starting off uh, talking about potential edge computing and IoT use cases in healthcare, banking, uh, transportation, logistics, et cetera? Yeah, certainly. I'll go ahead and get us kicked off. So if you if I mean ultimately all of us are, you know, have some experience with healthcare. I think um, most people can understand what it feels like to go into a doctor's office, uh, interact with the healthcare providers, or potentially have experience with either yourself or a family member being admitted into a hospital and uh, and seeing all of the devices you know uh, that are that are around just connecting everything and from an internet of things right you think about all of those devices as as Satyam was describing earlier they're synonymous with all of the edge devices he's he described they're all streaming information and in our environment, um, you, the, some of the examples would be the monitors that are connected to patients as they're admitted, you know, in a hospital setting um, that are taking your blood pressure and monitoring your temperature and 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 other you know respiratory rates and uh, you know all kinds of things. All of that information is flowing through our ecosystem. At the same token, we have a lot of other information, even our hand sanitizer uh, devices in the patient's room or just outside of the patient rooms are actually connected. We can sense when somebody is using either the soap dispenser or the hand sanitizer dispenser. We also have other devices um, you know, that are sensory type devices that can determine when somebody is walking in and out of a room or you know, just no different than a sensory, a, a light sensor when you walk into a room will turn a light on. And all of that information uh, we're actually capturing and have the ability to marry that up with other information that we're storing in our medical record system, our core system, um, and then can perform those analytics on it. So I think we have a lot of examples where we've successfully been able to develop and test those types of predictive analytics on information that's static information, sometimes changing in your medical record, but then the streaming data that's coming out of devices, uh, those edge devices, 
and other sensory devices and then drive near real time, it's not exactly real time, but near real time decision at the point of care. And a really good example of that is a solution um, that was developed by one of our researchers here at University of Chicago. Um, she's also a physician. She developed an algorithm based on a, quite a bit of retrospective information that can predict when somebody is likely to go into cardiac arrest within a period of time. That algorithm ultimately generates a score, and then we automatically alert a set of nurses to go check on a person if that score is within a particular range. There's a number of different factors that can influence that score. Um, again, respiratory rate, lab values coming back from you know lab results that 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 patient may have um, had done, and and all of that is you know ultimately uh, driving changes in our workflow for our providers, but it's also directly impacting our ability to deliver really good care to the patients. And in some cases, we're preventing that cardiac arrest from happening at all. Um, we're not quite ready to say that it's saving that person's life, but I think that over time, one of the things we are seeing is it is impacting mortality. The more people that we can prevent a cardiac arrest, the more people that are actually surviving whatever illnesses has got them here in the hospital. That's fascinating. It looks like you know, next time I don't use a hand sanitizer, it's going to judge me. <laughs> we actually use that use case to track, um, you know, use of the hand sanitizers by our staff going in and out of rooms because that's one of the things that we do know is clean hands actually helps prevent the spread of disease. And in a hospital, if you think about things like MRSA, um, not sanitizing your hands as you're going into a room and then coming out of the room is actually a key factor in the spread of something like that across the hospital or just a unit within a hospital. And so, um, you know, we, we, we use that to track our own um, uh, adherence to the rules, you know, to make sure that you're sanitizing going in and out. Uh, makes sense. You know, we always have, when it comes to the world of machines, we've always had a fascinating fascination about when Skynet is going to come alive. But, you know, the more <laughs> I hear about examples like this, you know, I think the world of machines is going to kill us not by literally killing us like Skynet, but by, you know, becoming our mommies you know, reminding us to use the hand sanitizer, et cetera. Um, so, but anyway, with that, uh, Anthony or Kumar, would you guys like to add, you know, interesting use cases from your own verticals? Uh, yeah, this is Anthony. I'll, <clears throat> I'll go first. Um, yeah, so uh, travel industry, everybody everybody buys airline tickets, takes uh, flights, fly on business, uh, leisure, leisure flights, trips, those kinds of things. Everybody kind of understands uh, what, what we're dealing with here. This travel industry that we all use and love every day, nobody pretty much goes to an office anymore and and orders tickets from a travel agent and, and gets those paper tickets and, and utilizes them that way. So today it's much more demanding. Um, all of us are pretty used to going online and Clicking a few clicks on your mouse and and uh, and getting and getting uh, some electronic tickets. Well, that was then, and as we move into today and the Internet of Things and uh, um, um, become more, the industries become more and more demanding. 
Uh, the expectation from your typical traveler is pretty much through the roof. Uh, travelers are expecting um, great traveler experience, uh, and they deserve that. So from shopping for tickets or shopping for hotels to reservations to the actual ticketing to ancillary services, check-in and more, this is the whole travel travel process and travel experience. And then there's also some behind-the-scenes work that uh, that's being done from the airlines and the hotels themselves when it comes to operations of their own of their own aircraft such as fuel of uh, fuel consumption utilities flight plans those kinds of things are also part of the equation here so we're always under constant pressure to provide better service and keep it at a low price our industry is uh, um, not not a commodity but it's it's priced uh, very competitively so as you provide more services and more capabilities, you have to keep the price, uh, price where it is. So the bottom line, we are using technology, uh, as, as you heard earlier, uh, pretty consistently. We're using technology to collect, to integrate data. We've got many different sources where, we're ordered, where, where we collect this data uh, from people, individual profiles. Everybody has a, a profile or, or um, uh, set up with an airline where you get uh, where you get loyalty programs and points and things like that. These are all typical areas we collect the data from. But the bottom line is we we're trying to enhance the personal individual experience for the traveler uh, themselves. So they expect more smarts. They trust their technology is very dependable and it's always going to work. So. For example, some of the areas uh, where, where where it's very different than than just uh, getting airline tickets and going on an aircraft and and then you're and then you're finished with your flight. We we look at all sorts of equations from pre-reservation before you book your tickets to post-reservation after you book your tickets to even during your trip. There's opportunities in in-flight experience and things like that, and then also post-trip. After you're finished, uh, what what kind of services and, and experiences can we provide at that point as well? So we look at those four different scenarios. And uh, for example, uh, navigation will become a lot easier. We'll know uh, uh, if you're sitting at an airport and you uh, your connection flight uh, is starting to experience flight delays, whether it be due to weather. Uh, potential weather or potential uh, 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 machine, the aircraft itself might potentially have some equipment failure that we're monitoring as well, where equipment could be failing, and uh, we're alerting the aircraft, the airport, that that could be happening. So all these things could be working into the equation. We could advise at that point, here's uh, multiple options right on your mobile device that you may be experiencing a delay in your flight. Uh, here's some other options for you to take, and if you take those options, we can also change the reservation at your hotel and also your dinner reservations, and we can also automatically call uh, people that you may be meeting at your destination. And do all this because we know who you are, we know the meetings that you've set up, we know the arrangements that you've made, we know your profile, we know your loyalty programs, how many points you might have, and things like that, so we can we can make that a whole lot easier uh, when it comes to disruptions during your during your trip. When it comes to check-in, things that we've done uh, even even today, uh, there are experiments, and you heard some of this uh, with the air, uh, smart airports, 
we've done some work where uh, instead of going to check-in counters uh, with your ticket uh, to check uh, to check yourself in, you you're automatically checked in as you walk through the airport, either through facial recognition, through uh, some sort of uh, retinal recognition, or even easier than that, just GPS position of where your where your smart device is and things like that. And so we can automate check-in. We could uh, track your baggage, not not just uh, with a number that potentially it's landing at a certain airport, but it actually will position where your bags are right now at every at any point in flight. And even during your in-flight in experience, we can personalize your experience much better than what we do today. Today, you can you can say, "Hey, I prefer a, a vegetarian dish." while I'm sitting in first class or business class, we can go a little further than that because we know everything you've ordered in the past, everything you've done in the past, we can uh, now uh, uh, assume and make recommendations on uh, the different types of things that you could do on the aircraft or in the hotel for that matter and uh, and so forth. And to make things even more um, mind-blowing here, there there's uh, some conceptual um, models that we're looking at now that actually add more sensors to the aircraft where we can detect uh, what what your uh, anxiety level is on that plane. If you're flying and, you're, and your body temperature is a little hot or you're, you, could, you could test your hydration levels and things like that, we can detect that. We've run some experiments doing this where now we can uh, make sure that if something like that is detected where you need water or you need uh, uh, your body temperature is going up, your anxiety is going up, we can have a flight attendant uh, take care of you in different ways and make it really personalized uh, so that you're more comfortable and you have a better travel traveler experience. And things like that. So the, the list is endless here. Uh, I can go on and on and on about this. It's uh, pretty fascinating when you, when, you, when you look at the potential. Really, the only limitation we have here, uh, just like most applications, is our imagination on what on what we can do. So it's a pre pretty pretty cool field to be in right now. See, that's very well said. I, I, the the limit is our imagination, and in fact, you know, I'll probably ask Chris later um, about how we can make it such that we can reach our imagination, the limits of our imagination faster uh, with analytics, machine learning, etc. Uh, but anyway, before I go there, uh, Kumar, any final thoughts from your side in terms of use cases? Sure, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so, you know, investment and financial services is interesting. You know, it has uh, the application of IoT, you know, so there, there, are, there are devices that people own there are systems that they log into. So, you know, in terms of physical sensors, there, there's you know, there's not that much uh, uh, prevalence of, of these sensors. But what we do have is the need to uh, detect changes in behavior, changes in intent, uh, and, and, and generate the signals that trigger certain actions from our employees, from our users, from uh uh, from from end users or from uh, from intermediaries like investment managers. So you know, so what I mean is, so in the, typically in an investment uh, flow in that process, it's it's a four or five stage process. That the uh, the you know the, the stage where the user or so a, a, a consumer, individual user or an institutional investor realizes that they want to uh, you know do something. They want to do 
uh, or make a uh, do a transaction, uh, buy, sell, move money around. It could be anything. Uh, the second stage typically is that they look for uh, someone to advise them on on uh, uh, you know how to and what to do. What should be their strategy, investment strategy, and 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 to do that, they have to find a particular advisor. Now, the advisor could be a system, could be a software service, it could be a person, it could be an institution. But there's a discovery process of finding someone and making a decision to, uh, you know, use somebody's advice. From that stage, then you define your own strategy, what you want to do with, with the help from this advisor. And then you start taking, uh, you know, making transactions, making decisions, uh, which then lead to transactions happening and being processed by financial institutions. And then they have to be reported upon, analyzed, and there's a feedback loop that leads to changes in the investment strategy, changes in the risk profile or the exposure whatever their decision might be. So this is, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a cycle. And every stage in this process, there are different uh, systems being used, different applications, different processes, different uh, pieces of information that have to be combined together to help someone devise a strategy, to help someone pick an advisor, uh, to help someone ad- uh, adapt and react to the transactions, uh, to, the, to the impact of their, their, their strategy that they've seen. And so what we're really talking about is, uh, you know, the, the strategy of taking everything, as Satyam said, taking everything back to the big cloud and, and, you know, running it through batch processes to produce an output that says, you know, three days or two days or, or a week later that somebody should have done X. You know, that, that, that doesn't cut it anymore. So we need the, uh, in our, uh, the, our employees or the investment managers who are intermediary, intermediaries or proxies to consumers or institutional investors to have the latest information and not just at the raw level, but also at the process level where, um, you know, so let's, where, where is someone, uh, where is an end user and what stage in the process are they, what are they trying to do, what is their intent? So that information is processed uh, in near real time and then presented back as an opportunity for, uh, you know, someone in the supply chain, the, the value chain to add value. And so you need to be able to process this information, many different signals coming from all over the place in near real time, and then generate the recommendations or the insights that someone in that value chain needs to add value to the uh, the ultimate user, the end user or the, the consumer or the institutional investor. And, and at the same time, uh, all this information can also be leveraged in real time to through the application of machine learning and AI to predict when, if a customer wants X and X is not likely to happen for whatever reason. What can be done? So how can how can the organization react faster to understanding that things will not go as planned? What is the expected impact on the uh, on the customer, and what is the ex- expected impact on the organization? And then react to it in real time to address that. So it could be uh, reducing. Uh, you know, uh, on on the positive side, you end up making the market more efficient by understanding these signals from all over the place. But on, 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 the, on, on the micro level, you make the organization more agile be, by being able to ensure that its employees have the best possible information to service the customers, that you can predict uh, you know, based on the actions of the customers and where they are and what they're doing and what they need to do. Uh, are there going to be any uh, uh, potential areas of dissatisfaction and what can, you know, who and what can that person or that team do to prevent that? So it really comes down to taking 
these decisions from happening in you know in the central in the center of the organization to the edge and then connecting the signals directly in these iot applications of sorts to you know so say if my job is uh, customer relationship management i should have a an application that takes in the relevant data that's coming in from outside the organization or inside puts it together and produces the signals or the insights that i need as an employee of therefore with that specific function to perform my my job at the best uh, possible level to make sure my customers are happy and this might be uh, for someone else the same data or a different subset of data might be used in a many di- in a in a very different way for uh, you know let's say an operations analyst to perform a transaction or enable transactions so they might use the same data but their application their use case is very different so what you really yeah. need is this real time behavior real time processing but also multiple parallel processing of potentially the same data happening in many different applications at the edge to enable the use case of the intended user exactly and so in fact you know that is a common theme between what all the three of you said right there are iot is not just about consuming a ton of data but it's also about democratizing access to insights out of that data so you think about that nurse you know his or her use case out of you know the exact insight uh, they want to derive out of data is very specific to their job or you think about the flight attendant you know the exact insight that's interesting to them so that they can serve their customers better is very kind of special to their job and then like you said you know an investment manager might want to derive some insights and you know gone are the days of having to wait for you know a month for your mainframe to tell you what you should do for a particular client those days are gone so i guess that leads me to the segue to chris is you know it's not just about collecting data i have seen that you know in the iot use case you know many kind of you know uh, what you call it architectures the architecture skewed towards how do you make data collection very easy but the problem is then you know you are sitting on a bunch of data different people have different needs out of that data which require different analytics programs to be written or different machine learning programs to be written etc and that to you know partly on the edge because of all the latency etc reasons we talked about you know from your experience chris how do you make that tractable you know how do you make it such that it's much much more easy to do analytics or machine learning on top of raw data than it is today you know today it requires data scientists is there light at the end of the tunnel yeah i that's a great question and and i think it it ties in nicely with what you kind of teed up about you know the importance of the edge the the massive amounts of data uh that 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 is coming you know it's coming at us pretty quickly uh you know the cloud platforms are really uh mostly designed for downloading you know data you know i'm thinking like netflix or or youtube videos etc not necessarily uploading or streaming massive amounts of real time data uh to the cloud so the need to to have edge networks um uh better connected better better computational uh capabilities is is important um you know we started off with trying to connect all of the things together and um you know these things talk different protocols they have different uh data schemas even temperatures for instance now that not every temperature sensor is uh, chirps data the same way so there's a lot of this this uh learning that we went through just connecting disparate 
things together on the edge. Um, and then you have to think about, okay, now that you've done that, now we've got to start looping people in, into these, these, these messages or these, the connectivity of these systems. You know, and a lot of these vertical use cases talked about that. Also, systems um, is another key piece, like the emergency medical record systems or flight systems, you know, along with all of this, this uh, sensor data. Um, once you have all of these things connected, um, a lot of us are going through these phases of automating things. So we're saying, hey, when this temperature reaches this threshold or this patient temperature reaches, you know, this vital reaches this, this threshold, then start doing things, alert, start alerting uh, other nurses or doctors that there might be a cardiac arrest situation. Um, so a as we automate, we also analyze that data. And that data, because there's so much of it streaming so quickly, we do have to get into the practice of, of analyzing that data on the edge where possible, and then streaming really only what's important up to the cloud so that we can do heavier machine learning, training, et cetera, in the cloud where we have more compute capacity. Um, and, and then what Kumar was talking about predicting, you know, the closer we can drive that machine learning or that artificial intelligence to the edge, the faster the response times will be at predicting what's happening. Um, a, a great use case for that is the driverless vehicles. I, I sit uh, near the Arizona State University campus and I'm watching uh, Uber and Google Waymo and GM cars, all three vendors' cars, lapping the campus every day. And these, these cars are like mobile data centers. They've got all of these sensors, all of this compute uh, on four wheels, and they're, they're making these predict, uh, predictions in real time. You know, someone steps into the road, what should I do? How should I swerve? Can I stop? You know, we, we have got to get to this point where this is, this is the new norm. Um, I think that to your point about blurring the lines between the edge and the cloud is, is already happening and, and that needs to happen for this, this type of new normal to, to be successful. And I think we're quickly reaching a point where, uh, pretty soon everything will compute. You know, not, not only, not only edge gateway servers or cloud, but wherever you have, uh, spare capacity everywhere, uh, it should be candidates for computing to get us to the point where we can make real-time decisions based on real-time machine learning, real-time analytics of data. And, you know, as we see anomalies, being able to react and, and further improve our automation. Makes sense. Uh, you know, personally, I go through these waves of extreme optimism to extreme pessimism. Given the scope of the problem we are out to solve, it's going to take a Herculean effort, but if we can do it, uh, I think this is going to be worth uh, writing books about. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, folks, you know, just in the interest of time, I see we have roughly five or six minutes now. Uh, so maybe a uh, lightning round now for all you guys. You know, switching to the human side of IoT and edge computing. You know, we are talking about creating technology that isn't being taught for in schools or in previous jobs that people had. How are you guys, you know, uh, getting talent or uh, kind of, you know, honing talent to deal with this new generation of applications, new infrastructure that people have no experience on? 
Uh, any interesting insights there? Um, Christine, I think that's actually a, a kind of a tough one, but one um, thing I would suggest in trying to stick with the federal neutral, you know, policy, we, we've been lucky that we have found, um, you know, a, a few vendors, and I will not name them. If you're interested, you can reach out to me separately, uh, you know, where we're able to get brand new talent, um, you know, with one to five years experience. And, and then, as you say, we're able to bring them in. They're young. They're energetic. They are just like sponges and, and want to learn. They're not afraid to fail. And so we've been able to take, you know, a few people like that and, and really um, mold them into the type of resource that we need. And it might be a developer resource or it might be an analytical resource. But I do think uh, leveraging uh, sourcing partners that can find that type of young, energetic, uh, new, fairly inexperienced talent is, is, is a, one thing that we personally at, at UCM have um, found some success specifically in the technology space. And that would include partnering with various intern you know, organizations where we can get interns as well. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I see you know, something similar on my side. I think uh, the focus needs to be on the application development part with uh, uh, minimal time and effort you know, as, as required being spent on the infrastructure and platform layer. And I think what what that leads to is when you when you when you keep your focus and eyes on enabling the the actual problem uh, solving the problem that you have and through through a custom build application, then uh, that teaches uh, you know the teams or, or individuals to make decisions that optimize are optimized for the application, which means that finding the you know so how do you pick the best vendor or how do you pick the best open source technology. Or, or whatever you know, anything in the middle that that gets you closer to the output or the the output that you are trying to enable. And by, by keeping your eyes and, and and through you know from from a product perspective, from uh, making sure that the user's requirements or the, the use cases is top of mind, that it, that that leads to cultivating that discipline and that that culture of you know the focus, the app development as opposed to platform and infrastructure, which should be you know. Uh, influenced by the needs of the application as, as opposed to the other way around. And so I think we're, we're just, because of this book through ML, AI, IoT, we're actually entering this phase where application development becomes extremely critical. Uh, and we're, we're leaving the phase where, you know, the last few years, the focus has been on platforms and infrastructure, especially with cloud and coming bigger uh, and, and, you know, mobile devices causing the platforms to uh, grow and mature. But now I think the focus really has to come to intelligent applications that leverage the platform's infrastructure. And, and then you pick the infrastructure and app platform depending on the needs of the app as opposed to the other way around. Uh, very true. It's becoming an application-centric world. And in fact, a lot of infrastructure guys are now moving to uh, thinking application first. So uh, good observation. Uh, looks like we are just about out of time. Any uh, final comments you guys would, you know, anything uh, you guys would like to share before we, we have a few questions on the line and before we switch on to the questions? I, I, I think Chris, the one I thing... Would like, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh. So 
So I th- I just just real briefly, um, I think that one of the things, and you touched on it a little bit, um, you know, but we're definitely starting to see this in healthcare as we are evolving our cloud um, uh, model, right? We have many different applications and capabilities that are deployed, software as a service, infrastructure as a service, and they're leveraging various different cloud platforms. As we look to, um, and, and I think you you had a comment in there that said it's an extended data center strategy. I think that that's a great way to describe it. Um, we all know that one cloud solution is not going to be sufficient, right? And and so I, I would argue anybody who's trying to get you to focus on pick a cloud vendor and stick with it is probably heading you down a path that's not appropriate. So think about Again, using that term, the extended data center strategy, I'm going to have to borrow that from you. But then what what we're describing, our cloud strategy, is a dynamic hybrid cloud because we also realize that eventually even cloud compute is going to become commodity, right? It's going to change in price minute by minute, day by day. And as you're starting to develop and think about where you want to deploy your capabilities, right, um, whether it be in a on-premise data center, a colo data center, that extended data center strategy again, or onto a cloud platform, whether it be private or public. Also think about what you need as your base capabilities, again, part of that operating system or that operating model that's going to allow you to flex, right, dynamically between any of them at any time for any reason. Makes sense, so. yeah. Yeah. Very true, very true. I, I think it's time for, uh, uh, thanks for noticing the extended data center, by the way. I forgot to mention it. But I think it's time to create a new hypervisor, a hypervisor that stretches across clouds. And this is not a hypervisor that provides virtual machines. It's a hypervisor that provides data as a first-class service. And then, you know, the ability to write literally code on top of that data. Um, but anyway... Any other uh, observations, folks? Um, yeah, well, I knew we were running out of time, so I, uh, I think, I think uh, one of the things, uh, you know, even breaking out of my travel industry for a second, I've, I've come for many years of uh, of uh, in, industrial side of things with GE and uh, and other other uh, companies like that on smart grid and and different different things, and, and one thing I I noticed there is that. This uh, technology uh, has has uh, really made a big impact in industrial applications. Uh, what I'm talking about are big machines and big uh, uh, what used to be dumb machines are now smart machines and really lots and lots of data that need to be collected and so forth. There and I think when I think of the difference, you know, how do you how do you employ people that really understand this stuff? When I think of what we what we've done with the smart grid is we, we we didn't call it edge computing at the time, but if you if you take the definitions of ed, edge computing and cloud, uh, the criteria uh, and the education that we would use, the people we would put on these kinds of things when we when we had scenarios where we needed to uh, the edge computing type of application that we're talking about here, these are things where we needed to get a lot of data, but it, it was a low latency situation. It was a, a real time. Um, uh, it, uh, it was intermittent connectivity. It wasn't full connectivity. Things like that. And then where we played in the cloud, or more of that extended data center um, uh, uh, terminology you guys are using. This is where we had 
a very heavy task, like in a, in a sense of uh, a smart grid, we were talking about uh, where this is where we did all the machine learning and we and we really did uh, the had the, the intense conversations with gas turbine engines and things like that. So I think there are very different uh, technical approaches and very different ways of thinking about um, how you develop your system and the kinds of talent you need on those kinds of systems. And I think at the end of the day, putting people on these kinds of applications that really understand systems engineering and the differences on how what criteria you would apply to edge computing and cloud computing, especially in, the, in that industrial scenario, plays a big role. Uh, makes sense. In fact, that, that's probably the first few success uh, cases for edge computing. Um, that said, uh, I see uh, Diana wants to help me out with the questions. Uh, Diana, anything you'd like to uh, right. say um, in terms of logistics? Yeah, thank you all for the panelists and Satyam for doing a great moderating um, this discussion. It's been a really excellent conversation. Um, so we're just going to um, review some of the questions that were submitted by the audience. Um, throughout this entire discussion. Um, so the first question goes over to you, Satyam. Um, how would data and logging retention requirements be met using a shared cloud model? And kind of a sub-question to that, are there any thoughts on shared risk mitigation costs versus kind of a non-shared risk model? Um, great question. Uh, I, I'll answer it in the, uh, you know, slightly in the abstract is, you know, data retention, logging, etc. You know, one thing is I see it as a first class, again, going back to my operating systems uh, kind of thought. I see that that's a first class service the operating system needs to provide. In other words, the IoT application creator or the edge application creator can set some retention policy on a data stream. And then they don't need to worry about how the system adheres to that retention policy for that data stream as it exists on the edge and as it exists on the cloud. Because you know the data stream might be severely fragmented between these two worlds, the edge and the cloud. And it should not be up to the application writer to have to deal with that amount of fragmentation. In fact, that's the only way to allow application writers to make consumptions of data consumption of data as dynamic as they want to without having to worry about the cleanup aspects or the security aspects or compliance aspects of data so long long story short i see it as uh, you know core operating system service that needs to be provided the ability to set policies uh, that pertain to data retention security uh, mobility whether a particular data stream should be available only on the edge or on the edge in the cloud, or only in the cloud, all those things. All right, perfect. Thanks, Satyam. Um, um, so the next question is for the panel. Um, how do you protect the IoT devices from a security perspective? So does anyone want to kind of take the lead and kind of answer this one? Well, I, uh, I can... Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a few things at play here, right? I mean, platforms themselves, you know, can ensure, you know, uh, uh, encrypted or secure communications uh, data in transit. 
they can also certainly secure uh, data at rest. Um, there's there's a, a part of the platform that, that's gotten a lot of attention lately, and that's the actual devices themselves being potentially vulnerable to uh, uh, security issues. And um, my, my memory's going back to the Mirai bot uh, attack that took Twitter and a lot of other sites down uh, a few months ago. That was um, passwords and, and uh, credentials on like video cameras not being changed. Um, so you've got, you've got updates that need to take place on the devices themselves, security on the devices themselves, that is typically outside of um, the IoT platforms themselves, but, but there has got to be a lot more diligence, I think, on, on enterprise-related uh, device selections, especially things like in the healthcare or things where life, life is uh, 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 at the hands, you know, like driverless vehicles, healthcare systems. Et cetera, those devices need to be well protected, potentially even well firewalled uh, themselves, in addition to having a, a well secured uh, IoT platform. Perfect, thanks. Um, does anyone want to weigh in on this question as well? You know, this is Anthony. I, I, I can't help but, answer, but help with this one too. Uh, Security. There, there's lots of things we worry about when it comes when it comes to this, especially as you as your as your system uh, is uh, could be very large and very much global. Uh, besides security, of course, you've got uh, it, just the general compatibility of devices, connectivity of everything, and all that other stuff. But security has always been, at least in my industry, and I think that's true for most of ours uh, here, is uh, the number one concern even before IoT. It's been a number one concern, just the fact that we're building service-oriented architectures and we've got standard ways of doing things and, and things have become much easier to breach and break into and things like that. So we've taken, uh, here in, in my company, we, we've always taken that extremely seriously and now with this, with the IoT, it's become even more serious and we've implemented, uh, again, not time for, uh, long enough time for the call, but at a high level, we've implemented uh, very uh, new and unique approaches around how we deal with our, with personal data from uh, people uh, and their their uh, uh, credit card numbers, things like that. And uh, and so we've got different ways of, of dealing with encryption, um, data on the fly, storage, uh, traditional methodologies work, but we've gotten even more um, more creative on how we secure personal data and personal data management. Um, we continue to approve uh, what we've uh, called event processing in our systems here, ensuring that we've got the latest and greatest machine learning type protocols that we can protect uh, a little easier. Again, nothing's perfect here. We continue to learn. And then I think there's uh, general improvements to our algorithms around how we uh, share data, uh, how we collect data, uh, again, going back to the encryption, uh, uh, protecting data on the fly, uh, using uh, the latest and greatest uh, security uh, uh, features uh, around the, the various interoperability standards that we have. So again, nothing's perfect here, but we continue. We know IoT adds a lot more risk and security. 
I don't think we've quite closed that gap yet, uh, at least not on our perspective, uh, which is why we're cautious with the whole thing here and, and really one of the biggest challenges we have, but we're getting a whole lot closer. All right, thank you. Um, so we just have time for one more question. Um, so, you know, as IT and security officers, you know, there are challenges on how data is being protected from being compromised. Um, so a question for the panel, um, and I'm going to just have Christine start it off because this person kind of wants to get the healthcare industry perspective. So how do you find the balance between processing a lot of data and being compliant to regulations concerning in and how your data is being used in the cloud. Um, so, Christine, um, if you want to kind of go ahead first and kind of anyone else who wants to weigh in on this question as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. So, as part of our standard processes, we refer to it as standard work, um, every uh, provider of services or capabilities goes through a security assessment, security and risk assessment, before we even implement it. And we look at all of, you know, um, we look at all of those things that would be referred to as non-functional requirements, especially as to as it relates to security. Um, and in some cases, we deny it, right? Or we require that people implement uh, solutions to minimize the risk. So for example, if we're going to leverage a software as a service solution that happens to be hosted in a cloud-based environment, maybe it's, a, you know, and, and that is a, a, a capability we're purchasing from a vendor. You know, we may require that they do not store that highly sensitive data or that they implement techniques to obfuscate it. Um, and, you know, so. I think each case right now is um, is being looked at individually, and in some cases, you know, we require those solutions to be deployed within our own data center if we don't feel like that they can be secured properly outside of our data center. In the future, that obviously has to change, and that's a key component as we develop that cloud strategy. I do believe that we're likely to focus more on putting compute in the cloud and keeping our storage of data um, in a, a you know closer to the breast, as they say. So we're going to likely, whether it be on-prem or in a colo, uh, we will not likely put highly sensitive healthcare information into a um, you know a, a public cloud for sure. Um, but we'll be less likely to put it into cloud than we would maybe a colo go as we move forward. Hopefully that answered your question. Perfect. Um, I'm just going to squeeze in one more question here because I think this is a really great question. Um, kind of talks a little bit about IoT in the consumer home. Um, so how can outside devices be cleansed when they come into the organization? So does anyone want to kind of share their um, perspective on this question here? Well, most devices have like a factory reset uh, mode that will put them back in factory reset. Um, you know, wiping basically all the personal settings and uh, off of the device. That typically does not uh, provide the latest updates to the devices, however. So you, you should certainly, you know, have your, your IT organization or whoever is in charge of rolling these devices out, 
also uh, update them and change uh, the passwords uh, on on each of those devices, as well as keep some type of an inventory. You know, as you're rolling out, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of new devices, especially in the enterprise, a lot of these home automation type class devices were not designed to, you know, have more than say 50 in in a location, for instance. So you've got to you've got to take that into account, like as you start rolling out hubs and and inventorying what which devices are where and maybe even which version levels uh, they're at. So much. Um... Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to check out the Nutanix online community for resources at next.nutanix.com. You can also reach out to me on Twitter at Angelo Luciani, and I'm hoping to meet many of you at .next taking place in Nice, France from November 7th to 9th. As always, from the team here at Nutanix, have a great week.